I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 9, PB&J. Today's proverb is the shortest I've covered yet, maybe the shortest possible. It's a proverb which is spoken so widely, so commonly, among so many different kinds of people, attributing it to anyone in particular would be absurd. I'll read it twice, as is custom. Today's proverb, life goes on. Once more, life goes on. Is this a proverb? Granted, it's not witty. And a lot of the proverbs that I've covered on the show up until this point have been clever. They've been pithy sayings that employed poetic devices, double entendres, synecdoches, ambiguities. But life goes on is too short and too much to the point to really dazzle anyone. It's not a dazzling, spectacular proverb, but... It is very commonly used. It's used by Christians. It's used by secularists, atheists. Everyone says life goes on. Not only does everyone say life goes on, people tend to say it a lot. Life goes on is not a thing merely said by a great diversity of people, but it's said commonly on a somewhat regular basis. Life goes on is a favorite proverb of mothers, fathers, best friends, pastors, priests. Life goes on is a thing that we often say to others who are suffering, but 
suffering mildly. Life goes on is a consolation for mid-range evils, not great evils. Life goes on is something that we say to people who often enough are caught up in their suffering and we have determined have suffered too long, have wept long enough, mourned long enough, and need to snap out of it. Now, when I say that life goes on is a proverb that is spoken to those who are suffering, I mean people who are intellectually suffering, psychically suffering, spiritually suffering. Life goes on tends to not be a proverb we say to people who are physically suffering. People who are physically suffering know that life goes on. Their suffering confirms it to them. Their suffering is an ever-present reminder that life goes on. And when we say life goes on, we mean life on earth goes on. We mean material life goes on. Which is something that people can forget when they're overly caught up in their own hearts, when they're overly caught up in their own minds. Life goes on is a thing that you say to someone whose suffering has carried on long enough, who has wept appropriately, but then kept going, and who needs to be reminded of the world. So if someone were to break their leg, you would not say as you were driving them to the hospital, life goes on. Life goes on is not something you would say to somebody who broke their mother's or grandmother's vase five seconds after they dropped it. You wouldn't say life goes on. If someone, your wife, your friend, were to drop their grandmother's vase and their grandmother was a terribly significant person to them, beloved mentor, now passed away, you wouldn't say life goes on to somebody five seconds after they dropped the vase and broke it you would allow the person to show their grief, to have a good cry, this icon, this relic of a now reposed beloved family member is gone, cannot be fixed, and that's worth weeping over. But if the person is still weeping, say, three days later, four days later, that's the point where you might say, hey, Life goes on. There are other things your grandmother bequeathed you. Life goes on is an incredibly unpopular thing to say. Now, this is a bit of a paradox, of course, because I've already said that everyone says life goes on, and they say it a lot. But you can only say or you're only allowed to say life goes on to some people, and our world is ever more against the sentiment of life goes on. So we say it anyway. But the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, does not like hearing life goes on. Maybe that's why I think life goes on is such an important proverb, is because it's despised. It's common, but it's despised. People say it, but they also disparage the sentiment on a broader scale. And this is because in our world, all grief is self-justifying. To take away someone's grief is to take away their power. To tell someone you need to snap out of it is to admit that you're not in the same spiritual place that they are. 
that they're lower than you are in terms of their spirits. They have low spirits. And if your grief is not the same as another person's, you are not allowed to lead them out of it. So grief justifies itself, and for the one who doesn't feel grief, nothing may be said which is critical to the grieving one. No grief needs to justify itself. It is necessarily just that a man grieve, and that a man determine how much grief is is allowed, how long that grief goes on. Life goes on is viewed as an offensive thing to say to people. And I think this is because it's a little true. It is offensive for someone to tell you life goes on. No one wants to hear life goes on. Nobody hears life goes on and says, yeah, that's true. The knee-jerk gut-level reaction to life goes on. Shut up. It does not. Leave me alone. Now, of course, if someone says life goes on to another and the other person says, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about, that's exactly the kind of person who needs to hear life goes on. If you say life goes on, you need to be prepared for the message to not be taken well in the moment. It's a thing that sinks deeply into us, but we don't like it. It is bitter medicine. It's not pleasant to hear. Life goes on means life on earth goes on. Material life goes on. And thus it resists a man's attempt to make the world all about himself. Life goes on, asks the suffering man to consider for a moment that other people are not suffering and that those people have needs and that perhaps the suffering man even has obligations to those people. Life goes on means the rent goes on. It means the heating bill goes on. It means the labors of your coworkers go on and they've been picking up your slack lately. Life goes on is a jarring thing to say because it asks us to take a cosmic view of our lives. And the cosmic view of your life never makes your life look terribly important. There's a great moment in the Paradiso where Dante has been steadily ascending for many, many cantos. He's ascended all the way through the Purgatorio. He's into the Paradiso. And he does something, I forget which canto it is, maybe somewhere between 10 and 20 in the Paradiso, where Dante does something in one of these cantos that he hasn't done previously in the whole poem, which is he looks back. And given the themes and the symbols of the story, Dante can't really look back because looking back would be a kind of rejection of the God that's before him that he's seeking after. Were Dante to look back in the comedy, it would be like the man who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back. It would be like resisting the adventure that God set before you. But Dante looks back, and he only looks back so that Dante, the author, can comment on how small the world looks. Dante gazes across 
many spheres, many millions of miles, and sees the Earth as a kind of small blue speck down there at the bottom of the cosmos. And in that moment, he can't help but to think of all the problems that beset the earth and how terribly important all those problems seem to everybody there. And yet they look very small to him within a grand view. The problems of the people on the earth are a relatively small portion of all the suffering there is. Life goes on, recalls other jarring, no-nonsense proverbs. Um, like the kind that philosophy offers to Boethius in the Consolation. Life goes on is one of those proverbs that sounds in my ear a lot like things could always be worse. Life goes on sounds like count your blessings. It sounds like there are plenty of fish in the sea. Which is to say that life goes on is not a permanent solution. It's not a proverb. In a certain sense, it's not a proverb you can live your whole life by. Neither is count your blessings. I bring this up, mention this, discuss it in How to Be Unlucky. But when Lady Philosophy tells Boethius, things could always be worse, count your blessings. She's only trying to get him out of this slump that he's in. These are proverbs that she says to make him feel better over the first several chapters of the book, but they're not meant to be sustaining. They're not meant to be permanent. Um, Inasmuch as a man couldn't tell Christ on the cross, things could always be worse. Inasmuch as one could not hear the cry of dereliction from the cross and say, hey, Count your blessings. Your mother's still here. They're not real solutions to the problem of evil. They're temporary solutions, though. They're not final solutions. They're not appropriate in all cases. Count your blessings. Things could always be worse. Are things that you say to people who are in the grip of mid-range level suffering. So life goes on is a kind of temporary balm. And like some temporary balms, it stings when it's initially applied. Life goes on is meant to shake us out of a trance or a preoccupation with thoughts of ourselves. It's not a proverb for all of life. It's a proverb for a Wednesday night or a Saturday morning. It's a proverb that could buoy a man out of the depression that results after getting dumped by his girlfriend. It's a good enough proverb. Even though the proverb is the art of common wisdom, life goes on exceptionally common. It's like the peanut butter and jelly of proverbs. Life goes on is just three words long, but it's strikes me as being very similar to a number of Solomonic claims about life. When Solomon describes life on earth, which is most of what Ecclesiastes is, most of Ecclesiastes is a description of the life that life goes on references. 
And when Solomon thinks of life, there are some pleasant, inspiring, consoling ideas presented in Ecclesiastes. But an awful lot of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's descriptions of life on earth are descriptions of mid-level suffering. Solomon's not tackling the problem of evil in Ecclesiastes. It's not like the Grand Inquisitor, right? Solomon is not like the Grand Inquisitor. He's not digging up the worst kinds of suffering and the worst forms of injustice possible. He's not describing, as you get in Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor, Brothers K, he's not describing a mother having to watch her child devoured by dogs. He's not talking about a child being murdered by his father by way of exposure to the cold. He's not talking about the demonic abuse and mutilation of animals. A lot of Ecclesiastes is devoted to mid-range level suffering. Oh, take the Pepsi challenge, see if it isn't true. Pick up Ecclesiastes again. See if most of the book is not about average suffering. What are the kinds of suffering that Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes? Well, a good woman is hard to find. Not one woman in a thousand is honest, says Solomon. He would know. He's tried a thousand. Your servants are always cursing you. Things fall apart. You spend your whole life building up a fortune and an empire, and then you have to hand it over to your idiot son. Then old age comes and destroys your body, the beauty of your body, the utility of your body. Things fall apart. And when they do, we say life goes on. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever, says Solomon, which is another way of saying life goes on. People die and life goes on. Life goes on no matter what. But interestingly enough, the proverb is meant as a consolation. And because we're so exposed to and familiar with life goes on, we often don't think about the fact that it's only a proverb that we say in negative circumstances. That's always true. When your buddy finds a $20 bill on the ground, we don't say life goes on, even though it does. If a friend asks a woman to marry him and she says, yes, we don't say, well, life goes on. The life referenced in Life Goes On is a kind of glum, kind of grim, and yet kind of hopeful thing. Life Goes On is an exhortation. And our generation hates real exhortation. We have confused exhortation with praise such that we are offended when we actually receive exhortation. We don't like to be told you could do better. We like to be told that we did a good job. We like praise. We actually think that praise is exhortation. We think that praise is encouragement. 
But life goes on is real encouragement. Life goes on means you've still got some time left. You've still got some time left to make your own luck. Fortune's wheel keeps on spinning, man. I rule. I have ruled. I have no kingdom. But how does fortune's wheel end? I will rule again. You've still got time. That's what life goes on means. You've still got time. You've still got time to love God, to love man. You've still got time to store up treasure in heaven. You've still got time to pursue your own difficult sanctification. But on the physical end of things, there's still nice things about life. Still good things to eat, good music to hear. And granted, the circumstances under which you're going to eat and drink and hear aren't what you'd like. But there's still something left for you to do on this earth. So far as your body goes, so far as your soul goes, life goes on and there are things worth doing. Life goes on is a proverb that recalibrates what we're supposed to think life is is. It jars us out of our own particular experience. It jars us out of the kind of benign and tolerable mood in which we live most of our lives. That mood that we commit ourselves to in work that largely brings us to forget that terrible things happen all the time. When we say life goes on, we mean life on earth. We say life goes on to people who seem to have incorrectly assessed what life is or who have forgotten what life is and accidentally come to think of life as a pleasant thing. What kind of a thing is life? Oddly enough, it's one of those weird aspects of this, of this proverb. Maybe the one entrancing thing about the proverb is the description of, or the use of the word life. What are we referring to when we refer to life? What comes to your mind when you think of life? What is the icon of life itself? We talk about life often enough. That's life, in this life. My students in their writing reference life all the time. In this life on earth, our life on earth, our life together life together. We talk about life all the time. What do we mean when we refer to life? Are we referring to existence as a whole? I don't think we are. The life referenced in Life Goes On is not some kind of metaphysical reality. It's not being. Right? When you say life goes on to someone, you're not saying, well, being carries on. I mean like the work-a-day life. What is the, what is the icon of life that enters your head? What picture enters your head when somebody refers to life? What kind of a thing is it? One of my favorite answers to this question, what kind of a thing is life? So broad. One of my favorite answers to this question comes from 
A Painful Case by James Joyce, which is a short story from Dubliners. And it, it's about a, a man whose life is something of a failure, though he doesn't entirely know it, who goes and has a conversation with an old friend who he hasn't seen in a long time, whose life is going well. And in the hour that leads up to this conversation, the man whose life isn't great, a fellow named Chandler, is kind of frittering away his last, uh, last moments at work, not really getting anything done. And he looks out the window. I want to read you just a little passage, a paragraph, short paragraph from a painful case. And this is Chandler. The glow of a late autumn sunset covered the grass plots and walks. It cast a shower of kindly golden dust on the untidy nurses and decrepit old men who drowsed on the benches. He's looking out a window. This is what he sees out the window. That light flickered upon all the moving figures, on the children who ran screaming along the gravel paths and on everyone who passed through the gardens. He watched the scene and thought of life. And as always happened when he thought of life, he became sad. A gentle melancholy took possession of him. He felt how useless it was to struggle against fortune, this being the burden of wisdom which the ages had bequeathed to him. I like this. I don't feel as though my own life is falling apart, but I love Chandler very much. The character means a lot to me. I like the way that Chandler is presented as a common man who, when he thinks of life, becomes sad, but Joyce presses this. The thought of life doesn't induce Chandler to sob. Rather, when life itself is averaged out, it warrants, according to Joyce, according to Chandler, a gentle melancholy. Taking it all together, all that's good, all that's bad, all that's great, all that's awful, life is worthy of gentle melancholy. Not laughter, not great weeping. You might have been to the doctor's office before and checked into the ER, rather. And when you check into the ER, maybe they only do this with little kids. Maybe they do this with adults. They hand you this chart that has a range of faces on it. Do you know what I'm talking about? like a range of faces. There's like 10 faces in a row or seven faces. We'll say, I think it's 10, 10 faces in a row. And on the far left side is this weeping, sad face. And then the face gets progressively smilier as it goes to the right. And there's a number under each of them. And when you go to the ER, uh, you know, the nurse or the maitre d' or whatever hands you this kind of menu of suffering and says, where are you? Like point to the face that is your face. And you have to choose the face that signifies 
your own internal agony. What kind of a thing is life? For Solomon, the answer is like a five, maybe like a four and a half. Taken all together, life's a little more upsetting than it is consoling. But for Solomon, this is actually where the good life exists. Because elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, he says, a sad countenance makes for a strong heart. And so that halfway point, that gentle melancholy, the sense that mid-range evils and sufferings warrant reflections on life as a whole, allows us to desire something higher and better without being ungrateful for what God's given us and the time that we have left. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.